Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Unwelcome but expected, the coronavirus has hit the UK. When coronavirus hit our shores, no one knew what to expect. It's hoped containment measures will prevent the virus from getting established here. By April 2020, the UK was under full lockdown. You must stay at home. Care homes started to shut their doors to visitors to protect their senior residents. But it wasn't enough. A third of all deaths linked to coronavirus in England and Wales are now happening in care homes, according to the latest figures. We're holding their hands because their family can't. Our residents are still part of the population that shouldn't be forgot about. Tens of thousands of people living in care homes died in the first wave of COVID-19, despite the government saying... Right from the start, we've tried to throw a protective ring around our care homes. So when we got Matt Hancock's WhatsApp messages, we had to get to the bottom of what happened in care homes. Were the elderly really protected? And we found something. Several things. I want justice and I want change. Tens of thousands of grieving families, but they already feel like they're not being listened to. But it wasn't just the messages which were revealing. A source had come forward with another leak about an offer made to care homes around County Durham and possibly elsewhere in the country. I don't think any of us knew what was happening and what, what the, the government was doing. To think that the government let this happen, it was, it was horrendous, disgraceful. Welcome to the Lockdown Files podcast. Episode 3, The Case on Care Homes. A couple of years ago, in the summer of 2021, while we were still in the heart of the pandemic, I came across an article in a local newspaper in the north of England. It was about an elderly lady who lived in a care home and had died in the first few weeks of the pandemic. This was Barbara Wells at the Stanley Park Care Home Christmas Party in December. A week ago, Barbara died in the home, another life taken by COVID-19. About six months later... I started talking to people in the local area to find out what had happened. 
Slowly, sources started to emerge. I remember Barbara's story. My colleague Sophie Barnes hopped on a train to visit her family. I'll let her tell you more about it. So I met with Elise Poppy and her mother Marlene Dixon. Elise is 50 years old and Marlene is in her 70s. They lost their grandmother and mother at the beginning of COVID when the virus ripped through the care home where she lived. She absolutely lived for bingo. My whole life, all I've ever known was her go to the bingo every day if she could. <laughs> Did she win very much? No. Oh. No, <laughs> no but she just, she, like, she had a lot of friends there and it was, it was a lovely company. My mum needed company. Mm. You know, she loved people. She always had a boyfriend, even at the care home, right <laughs> on the last few few weeks. Um, Lewis, he was called Lewis. They used oh. to sit next to each other and hold hands. Barbara Wells had been living in Stanley Park Care Home in Durham after she'd been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. When the pandemic hit, Barbara was 96 years old. She had no arthritis. She had um, better eyesight than me. She wasn't deaf. She didn't have any problems whatsoever, did she? No, she was never ill. She was very lucky. In March 2020, the care home, like the rest of the country, went under strict lockdown. And for the residents of Stanley Park, and among them Barbara, their quality of life deteriorated drastically. We were in every single day to visit. Mm. And so when it came to the point where we couldn't go in anymore, and we were talking to residents through the glass, mm. they were all horrified. They couldn't, nobody could understand what was going on. And they were saying, please come in, please come in. Meeting Elise and Marlene really added another layer to the work we'd already been doing for several weeks on the WhatsApp messages. One of the documents was a massive group chat called Top Teams. This had messages from Matt Hancock in it, plus his advisors. One of the messages really caught my eye. It was sent on the 14th of April. The country had been in lockdown for about three weeks by then. It was just after 9am the then health secretary sends a message. My colleague Janet is going to read it for you. So the message says, Chris Whitty's done an evidence of you. And then it says, and he now recommends testing of all going into care homes and segregation whilst awaiting result. And the last line here is, this is obviously a good positive step. Let me clarify that government jargon for you. So Chris Whitty, the chief medical officer, recommended that everyone going into care homes should be tested and isolated. Crucially, according to the message, Whitty said all, which could be an awful lot of people. We've just seen his message, so we don't know exactly what he meant. But all is likely to have included hospital discharges, those admitted from private homes and maybe staff. Later in the day, there's an update from Alan Nixon. That's one of Matt Hancock's advisors. He's asking for some clarification after he's attended a meeting about testing. So there's a message here from Alan Nixon and he goes, just to check, officials are saying your steer is to remove, and that's in bold, remove the commitment to testing on admission to care homes from the community, but keep commitment to testing on admission to care homes from hospital. And then he asks, is that right? I know this is a bit difficult. Please bear with me. By the end of the day, Whitty's advice seems to have been narrowed down to testing only people admitted from hospital. That seems to leave out people admitted from their homes and staff. Alan Nixon seems to be framing it differently, writing what they hope to achieve in the future. 
So the message goes, update. We can say in the doc that it's our ambition to test everyone going into care homes from the community where the care homes want. And then in brackets, he says, in the coming weeks is the suggested time frame I've been told. Then Hancock writes, Tell me if I'm wrong, but I'd rather leave it out and just commit to test and isolate all, in caps, going into care from hospital. And then he says, I do not think the community commitment adds anything and it muddies the waters. It muddies the water. That phrase really stuck with me. It looked like one of the chief scientists had made a recommendation, but it wasn't being adopted, at least not immediately. But to be sure about what happened, we needed to check the formal documentation from the time to work out what had been decided off the back of that meeting. We needed to know if this decision could have affected someone like Barbara Wells back in Durham. So I asked my colleague Catherine Hi, Claire. to look into it. The day after this key WhatsApp chat where they talk about mudging the waters, there was new guidance issued and in it, it said it would start testing all of those being discharged from hospital, but only that it would move to testing people who were being admitted to care homes from the community. So essentially, Chris Whitty's warning was not taken in at that point. I then looked through the various iterations of the guidance to see where I could find the first mention of testing those coming in from the community. And I couldn't find anything before the 14th of August. And that is four months after this conversation. So it feels like Chris Whitty gave his advice, but it wasn't taken on board for quite a long time afterwards. After we published this story, a spokesperson for Matt Hancock went on the radio and said that Hancock had enthusiastically accepted Sir Chris Whitty's request for care home testing, but was advised it was not currently possible to test everyone entering care homes in a meeting later that day. They said, Matt concluded that the testing of people leaving hospital for care homes should be prioritised because of the higher risks of transmission, as it wasn't possible to mandate that everyone going into care homes got tested. In a statement, a spokesperson for Matt Hancock said, quotes, As explained to The Telegraph, this story is wrong, has already been proved to be wrong, and The Telegraph could have known this if they bothered to ask before printing falsehoods. A government minister also gave some insight into what was happening behind the scenes. Standing up in the House of Commons, Helen Waitley, the social care minister, said there was an email which followed up on the messages. We can press ahead straight away with hospitals testing patients who are going to care homes and we should aspire to as soon as capacity allows and when we've worked out an operational way of delivering this that everyone going into a care home from the community could be tested. So according to them, the issue is capacity. The scientists had suggested a course of action, but they are unable to implement it. I hope this isn't too much detail. The reason it's interesting is you probably remember the government repeatedly telling us they were following the science. What we found out made us ask if the protective ring had really been implemented. In our reporting, we found instances where scientists said they were not listened to. One of them is Professor Carl Hennigan, an urgent care GP who worked in care homes during the pandemic. He was also called on by the government to give advice from time to time. Carl Hennigan remembers telling the government that care homes were extremely vulnerable to COVID. He said 40% of all deaths across the country were happening there. 
and I brought this up numerous times. I said, look, in the first wave, this is 40% of the problem. What are you doing about it? And actually, we did nothing about it. Who did you bring that to? That was at the cabinet meetings and said, look, we've got to have a strategy because this is where your problem is. Another person who made some recommendations to the government about care homes is David Halpin. You've heard him in the previous episode. He's the director of the Behavioural Insights team, known as the Nudge Unit. At the height of the pandemic, Halpin and his colleagues were looking at a study which examined the spread of COVID in care homes. They found that the majority of homes automatically gave sick pay from day one, when you had COVID or had been told to isolate. They had on average 13% lower infection rate. But in 7% of the homes, staff didn't get sick pay. We'd written internal notes saying we thought it was very likely that some low-income groups, they're under enormous pressure to work. They're going to carry on working even if they think they're feeling a little bit off-colour. This study seemed to suggest that transmission rates could be lowered if workers didn't feel they had to choose between their health and their paycheck. Halpin and his team wondered if cash incentives could be given to workers to help them self-isolate. A 13% lower infection rate. That's a pretty hard outcome, which is literally the infection rates in those care homes. So that would be an example of a natural experiment, for which you can then try and work out, well, what is the extra cost for doing that? What happens when you pass that information up? Well, obviously, we highlighted it was both relevant with respect to care homes. Now, not that much happened. I mean, some stuff happened on incentives. We probably would have gone further. But, you know, in the end, you know, you give evidence, you try and best you can, um, mm. and it's for others to look at. In March 2020, the government had expanded statutory sick pay to cover workers from their first day of absence and said that infection control grants introduced in May could be used to supplement this statutory pay. But it wasn't until September 2020 that the government introduced a self-isolation payment of £500 for low-income workers. But the scheme was so restrictive that most applicants not on benefits had their claims turned down. So Chris Whitty, Carl Hennigan, David Halpin and the Nudge Unit, three instances of the government not responding or being able to respond quickly and sufficiently enough when it came to care homes. There was another decision which had a massive impact on senior citizens. The government decided to discharge patients from hospitals. Some of them would have to go to care homes. The goal was to clear beds in case a wave of patients came in and overwhelmed the NHS. We asked Martin Green, the chief executive of Care England, why this happened. The NHS seems to have the priority in absolutely every conversation. Mm. It dominates the media, it dominates politics, it dominates public perception. Mm. And those are some of the reasons why uh, I think the policy didn't actually follow what was actually happening. Mm. It was as if the NHS was the only organisation that might be affected by a global pandemic. And in reality, lots of social care was was also hugely impacted because of the vulnerability of the people that we support. She started to become ill on a Thursday. Unfortunately, COVID did get into Stanley Park. And it was two weeks after that she died. After a week, we thought she was going to get better because she suddenly perked up. And we were delighted because they rang us that morning and said, oh, she's woke up, she's had some breakfast, she's had some orange juice. And we were so relieved. We thought, oh, good, she's got through it. And the very next day, she went downhill and she went to sleep, basically, and she didn't wake up again. And we were always shouting things through the window to say, come on, fight it. 
my mum says, I feel like I just need to go. And they said, you can come in. And so my mum went in for about five minutes and she must have been waiting for my mum. They put the mask on me and everything, you know. I held her hand. But I was pleased I was with her. Still hurts after all this time. COVID-19 ripped through the care home at Stanley Park. In a matter of weeks, 32 residents died. Barbara Wells was the 14th. Shortly after her mother's passing, Marlene heard a strange rumour. Someone she knew came up to her in a supermarket while she was doing her shopping. They said they were sorry to hear about her mum and what a shame it was that testing hadn't been done properly on patients discharged from hospital. Marlene couldn't believe her ears. A man came out of the hospital into the care home, obviously hadn't been tested and had COVID. Mm. And I think uh, it was my mum and, and another old man, bless him, uh, caught it. And within a fortnight, they were gone. A spokesperson from Stanley Park told us, quotes, Mrs Dixon's belief that a hospital discharge brought COVID into the home is incorrect. They said their analysis showed that COVID had actually got into the home because of staff unknowingly bringing it in. They said there were two routine discharges from hospital during the relevant period, both women, who, according to them, did not have COVID. But at this stage, what we do know is that testing wouldn't have been widely available for these people discharged from hospital. Other institutions, like prisons, for example, have dealt with the lack of available testing differently. So we weren't taking any chances. Even if you presented without symptoms, you were kept 14 days away from the main body of the prison. Robert Buckland was Justice Secretary during the pandemic. Very early on, he received advice from Public Health England to isolate all prisoners symptomatic or asymptomatic. So if you came into a prison and you were fine, you'd still be kept in a sort of a holding place for 14 days in the prison, but away from the existing cohort. And then the vulnerable, the elderly, the ill, were segregated again. I mean, it is fascinating to hear you describe adopting that policy so early on, even pre-testing, because I would say from a kind of outside point of view that the treatment of um, care homes during the pandemic was a particular failure of the government. Well, the expert who had been advising us, they meant to advise in the health sector, in the care home sector. In health, there were about, what, 35,000 care homes, many of whom in the private sector, much more fragmented, much more difficult to sort of, you know, impose a sort of general uniform direction. Uh, And therefore, um, I think that that was always going to be more of a challenge. While coronavirus ripped through care homes and killed more than 10,000 people in the first few months of the pandemic, only 55 deaths were recorded in prisons across the country before July 2020. We had exactly the same conditions in terms of proximity of people, poor ventilation very often in prisons, where, where things dramatically took a different turn as opposed to some of the care homes where things went very badly awry. But that came at a cost. Many prisoners were left in what critics described as effectively solitary confinement for months on end. No measure is ever perfect, but it did limit the number of deaths in a high-risk environment. We've checked the government's guidance for care homes. At the beginning of April, it said that only residents showing symptoms of coronavirus should be isolated. 
But by the 15th of April, that's two days after Barbara's death, they had toughened up their approach. At this point, all patients leaving hospital were to be tested. And until you got your test result, you had to be isolated from other residents. Even if you had a negative test result, there was a recommendation that you should be isolated, but it wasn't a requirement. Back in Stanley Park in Durham, Elise explained it was unlikely patients admitted from the hospital could have been isolated properly. The care home always said to us that they, they didn't want other people coming in because they more or less had a full house. They had 72 residents and I think there was only about 75 rooms. Even if these patients had their own room, it seems likely that staff would have been going from one resident to another. A spokesperson for Stanley Park said, quotes, Stanley Park carried out as many measures as possible to try to ensure that the spread of coronavirus was limited within the home. In addition to the provision of PPE, a separate entrance was arranged for colleagues who worked on our upstairs suites and a designated room was allocated for colleagues to change into their uniform at the start of each shift. This approach was continually reviewed and followed government guidance throughout the pandemic. We asked Martin Green about how the government had implemented this isolation policy throughout the sector. I think it really goes to the heart of the fact that they don't understand this sector. So, for example, if they had said, let's ask the care home sector which care homes have the capacity to really isolate people, that they might have the capacity, for example, to take a whole wing out of their care home, that might be 25, 35 beds Mm. that we could put as an isolation unit, we could barrier it from the rest of the care home. And there are care homes around that could do that. Mm. There were also some care homes that were newly built and ready for commission. They could have talked to care providers about whether or not they could have set those up as specialist units for people who were older and had um, COVID. But they didn't seem to do that. The discharge policy put a lot more pressure on the care home sector. And that's where our new leak comes in. We found out that care homes in Durham were asking for more money to help them cope with COVID. One of the documents leaked to us shows that in a letter dated the 30th of March 2020, Durham Council agreed to increase funds. But there's a catch. There's a clause which says in order to receive the money, care homes have to take in COVID patients. That seems like an extraordinary thing to suggest a week into national lockdown. Some care home providers were really worried. We also found a contract which follows up on this offer. In the leaked documents, we can see a list of around 40 care homes around Durham, which are recorded as having accepted the offer. One of these is Stanley Park. Back in Durham, my colleague Sophie asked Barbara's family how they felt about this. That's terrible. I mean, weren't they getting enough of the poor old people to start with? Stanley Park Care Home have told us that no one in authority signed the contract and also that they had a policy not to take any COVID patients. What we now know is that towards the end of April, Durham Council revised their offer. Care homes no longer had to take COVID patients to get increased fees. Durham Council said they didn't want to do an interview with us. I'm going to read out a statement by Jane Robinson, the Corporate Director for Adult Health at the Council. She said in response to our investigation, quotes, 
In March 2020, the government asked hospitals to immediately discharge patients to care homes. In response to this, we, like many other local authorities, followed expert advice from our national industry bodies and offered to distribute additional funding from the government to cover some of the increased costs of accepting hospital discharges for those care homes that had the capability and capacity to accept them. Ultimately, no payments were made on this basis. Once guidance was provided by the government, we adapted our approach and all care homes received the additional funding. But for Barbara's family, that's not enough of an answer. Of course, lots of people have gone through it. It's so sad. But yeah, the government was to blame. Simple as that. And I'll always say that. Throughout the interviews we did for this series, we asked government ministers what they knew and whether they regretted decisions made when it came to care homes. Here's Jacob Rees-Mogg, Nadim Zahawi and Kwasi Kwarteng. Matt Hancock at various points has said that they placed a ring of steel around them from the very start. Do you think he told the truth about what was happening in care homes? Um, truth, what is that? My experience of it, and a caveat I'm about uh, to give you is, obviously I wasn't close to the decision at the time. Uh, a jesting pilot would not wait for an answer. Um, I, I, it, it, truth is a very difficult concept to define. I was focusing on businesses yeah. and rescuing the economy, effectively. Uh, look, I think given what we knew at the time and given the resources we had, I think, I think, I think we did a reasonable job. Uh, and, and I think it's always harsh to accuse politicians of um, malevolent lies. The NHS and the Department of Health were focused on protecting the most vulnerable. What I think was difficult was that there wasn't the capacity to test in the early stages or even the knowledge of what the test was telling you. We didn't know incubation periods, all sorts of things weren't known. And you needed hospital beds. There was no evidence that I saw where people felt that for political expediency they would make a decision that would not be correct mm. to protect the most vulnerable. I didn't see anything that would lead me to believe that that would be true. Now, looking back, you can, one can pick holes completely. Dominic Cummings specifically said that Matt Hancock had given Cabinet and the Prime Minister the impression that those people being admitted to care homes from hospital would be tested. Do you have any memory of that? I don't remember the details of that. Uh, I mean, um, I... I very strongly disprove those WhatsApp messages and what's come out about that and how things were being run. But Matt is not a bad man. Do you think he was straight with you and the public about care homes and what he was doing? I think he was. I genuinely think that yeah, Matt worked all hours. Uh, if he has a fault, and do we not all have faults, um, he is over-enthusiastic. And therefore he would always be saying... Oh yes, I, I'm on top of this. All you, you know, that's just his default position is to um, indicate a greater degree of confidence than the facts may justify. But as I said, I mean, I was this is very far from what yeah. I was occupied with. But as everybody knows that of him, I, I don't think people would be particularly taken in by Matt saying it's all absolutely marvellous. That that's, as I say, his default position, um, even if everything was collapsing around him. And that's the best answer I can give you. Official figures show that in England, there are around 14,000 COVID-related care home deaths in the spring of 2020, 
But because it was so hard to get tests, that's likely to be a massive underestimate. Three years after the pandemic, we're all reckoning with its long-term consequences. For relatives like Elise and Marlene, that means not having been able to say goodbye properly. It was just so sad to think that I couldn't have been with her before. Carl Hennigan, the urgent care GP you heard from earlier, remembered how important that time had been with his own family. There were situations where the family member would be at the window looking in and not allowed in. And I purposely don't think that's right. My mum unfortunately died before the pandemic, but I was there in the hospice for the seven to ten days before she died. It was, it's in a very, I'm feeling emotional talking about it now. It's just a very important time for me and my sister in our life. So when you think about that, you go, we're denying that to people. And I think now there's a lot of people that may have emotional damage that they'll never resolve because of those issues. And in the care home sector as a whole, the pandemic left such a deep scar on its staff that a lot of them have since changed careers. The carers were on their knees, weren't they, Lisa? They were. They were on their knees. They were crying every time they went in because somebody had died. They didn't know what they were going to face the next morning. They were like shells of themselves because they were just distraught emotionally as well as physically because of all the work that they were doing. And after a year, quite a few, we found out that a lot of them had left because they couldn't cope with the the mental health issues they were having because of all of the deaths that happened. That kind of financial offer made in Durham seems to have cropped up elsewhere. I'll let my colleague Sophie tell you. I sent a freedom of information request to councils across the country, asking them if they had offered higher fees to care homes if they agreed to accept COVID patients from hospital. Birmingham Council sent me a document which showed they offered care homes £1,000 for every patient they took from hospital at that time. The document states that the home should accept admissions regardless of the citizen's COVID-19 testing or diagnosis status. What's particularly concerning is that when I asked how many patients with COVID were accepted by care homes, they said five care homes in the area took in 16 patients who had tested positive for COVID. So there's a risk that this allowed the virus to spread around these homes. A spokesperson for Birmingham Council said that they had followed national guidance at all times and that in the majority of cases, discharged citizens elsewhere to reduce the spread of COVID in care homes. They said that the £1,000 figure was to support all hospital discharges, helping providers to purchase additional PPE, pay additional staff, and conduct additional cleansing to allow the prompt discharge of residents into care homes and to support appropriate isolation and infection control measures. Following on from our investigation, a spokesperson for the COVID-19 Bereaved Families for Justice called on the inquiry to look at these financial offers. This isn't the end of our investigation. We're going to carry on digging. If you have any information about these issues, please do contact us. Throughout this episode, we've been trying to answer the question, what went wrong in care homes? Martin Green thought all the flaws in the government's response boiled down to one thing. I think society is riven with ageism, so it's hardly surprising in a way if policy follows where society is. I think we should acknowledge that every single person is a person of value. I'm Claire Newell, and this is the Lockdown Files podcast. 
If you like the series, please leave a five-star rating and a short review on Apple Podcasts. Please consider taking out a Telegraph subscription. We couldn't have made this show without our subscribers. Listeners to this podcast can get exclusive sign-up deals at telegraph.co.uk forward slash lockdown files podcast. And if you've any information to share, please email us on lockdownfiles at telegraph.co.uk. This episode of the Lockdown Files podcast was written by me and Adelaide Pogemon-Ponte with help from Jack Boswell. Adelaide Pogemon-Ponte is also the series producer, with Janet Easton working as co-producer. The investigations team behind it are Catherine Rushton, Sophie Barnes and Janet Easton. The other reporters who worked on the Lockdown Files are Robert Mendick, Hayley Dixon, Tony Diver and Jack Leather. The interview in Durham was recorded by Hannah Aguru. Sound design and mixing by Jack Boswell. The executive producer is Louisa Wells. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.